It's Unrelated Things. Greetings and welcome to the Unrelated Things podcast, a podcast where I talk to you about things, stuff that I find interesting, amusing, concerning, uh, stuff that angers me, whatever I find usually uh, online that piques my interest and I want to share with you. If you want to send me any feedback, you can send that to unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can check out the website unrelatedthings.net for more. First story up is a story from boingboing.net. A cow escaped from a rodeo six months ago and no one can catch her. Last summer, a three-year-old cow named Betsy somehow escaped from a rodeo in Alaska and went to a 4,000-acre park on the outskirts of Anchorage. She's been spotted many times in the park by hikers and bicyclists, but so far, no one has been able to capture her. Quote, I'm just totally exhausted from looking day in and day out, Frank Koloski Betsy's owner told the Washington Post on Tuesday night. She's a go-getter, that's for sure. Koloski had a plan in place. If he can just figure out where Betsy is hiding, he'll bring several other cows to that location. Betsy will immediately rush towards the other cattle, he predicts, and a number of his rodeo acquaintances have already volunteered to help him rope her. Until he knows exactly where she's located, though, he's not eager to let the other cows loose in the dense, dark woods. Yeah, that plan sounds like it may have some drawbacks. In the meantime, Betsy appears to be doing just fine. Alaska cattle are tough and accustomed to the area's harsh winters, Koloski said. Since the park is within city limits, he doesn't think there's too much of a risk of her running into a bear or a wolf. There are still plenty of natural sources of water that haven't frozen over and he's left out hay bales and mineral salt blocks nearby. During the summer, Betsy would have found plenty of fresh grass on the slopes of the ski areas to feast on, he said, and even once the snow started falling, there were still patches of green grass to be found under the overhang of the trees. Quote, It's a cow's dream, he said. Next story up is from Raw Story at rawstory.com. This is written by Brad Reed. Rand Paul is going to Canada to get hernia surgery. One of socialized medicine's biggest critics is about to get some first-hand experience in how it works. The Louisville Courier-Journal reports that Senator Rand Paul Republican of Kentucky, a libertarian who in the past has compared Canadian-style single-payer health care systems to, quote, slavery, will be traveling to Canada later this month to get surgery on a hernia. The Courier-Journal discovered that Paul is scheduled to have a hernia operation at the Shouldis Hernia Hospital in Thornhill, Ontario, next week, according to documents filed in the senator's civil lawsuit against a neighbor who attacked him last year and left him with six broken ribs and a bruised lung. Paul, who is himself a former ophthalmologist, has regularly attacked 
democratic proposals to ensure universal health care, whether they take a more market-based approach like former President Barack Obama's landmark Affordable Care Act, or whether they aim for a Canada-style system like Senator Bernie Sanders' proposed Medicare for All bill. Quote, with regard to the idea whether or not you have a right to health care, it means you believe in slavery, Paul said back in 2011. You are going to enslave not only me, but the janitor at my hospital, the person who cleans my office, the assistants, the nurses. You are basically saying you believe in slavery. I don't know if this can really uh, have a, a, a suitable response. But he's clearly being hyperbolic. Um, I, I don't believe that he actually believes that a single-payer health care system is the equivalent of slavery. Slavery is forced labor that's generally unpaid. I don't know if you can still call it slavery if there is wage involved. You can certainly call things wage slavery, and I think that uh, in some sense wage slavery does exist. Um, but to to consider single-payer health care slavery is is absurd. It's just absurd. It's like hard, it's hard to even respond to. It's obviously not anything like slavery. Every worker, every employee that is funded via a single-payer system, whether they are the doctor or the janitor at the hospital, <clears throat> it has a choice. They have a choice to work there, to work elsewhere in the healthcare industry, or to work in a completely different profession. It's entirely their choice. Slaves do not have a choice. It's what makes slavery slavery. And single-payer health care won't necessarily significantly change our system. It will only significantly change, of course, depending on how it's structured, but it will only necessarily change who pays the bill, whether it's an insurance company and or a private citizen paying a hospital bill, or whether it comes out of a government fund, the way that it does currently for Medicare. So, uh, interesting story that Rand Paul, the proponent of, um, of equating single-payer or government-run, government-sponsored, government-managed health care with slavery, is on his way to Canada to have an operation. And this next piece is from boingboing.net. This is written by Zenny Jardin. Thieves use bulldozers to steal $2.3 million from armored van on highway. In southern Italy today, a brazen highway robbery in which thieves use bulldozers to pry open an armored van on the road. This story seems to me straight out of a movie. And like a a movie where you're like, how did they even think of that? How did they even consider 
putting that into a movie, what gave them that idea? But this indeed was reality. Police say thieves blocked the money mobile off with two big vehicles on both sides, then ripped the doors off with the machine's giant digging jaws, then made off with at least 2 million euros or $2.3 million in U.S. dollars in cash. From Reuters, the blue security van had left the city of Bari and was carrying pensions to be distributed in post offices in nearby Matera when it was blocked on the road by two lorries. Two diggers then tore open the vehicle, using their mechanical arms like can openers to gain access to the cash. The lorries were then set ablaze as the hooded thieves escaped with their loot in a waiting car. The three guards in the van were unharmed. And there's videos on or videos and images uh, online as part of the story as well. It shows the burning trucks. It shows the big uh, bulldozers that were used to tear that van apart to get into the compartment where the money was. That is crazy, crazy way, a crazy scheme to rob an armored truck and a successful one. This piece also is from boingboing.net, this one written by Rusty Blazenhoff. This week on the same day, I had not one but two friends tell me about designer Sonia Harris's, quote, swearing patterns. Of course, I instantly became a fan. Her hidden in plain sight patterns are subversive, yet perfectly understated. For example, this t-shirt's design appears to be a fancy mandala at first glance. But look closer and you'll see the words insufferable wanker cleverly incorporated into the pattern. She got started drawing the patterns using an iOS app called Amaziograph while she was going through treatment for breast cancer, writing that swearing is a meditation for her. Quote, Despite my desire to create and soothe myself with art, I was also very angry at the bad luck of having spent decades dealing with pain from endometriosis only to get breast cancer just as I thought there was an end to it. The disgusting effects of the treatment, the frightening and painful experiences kept on coming. Hence, my patterns contained a lot of profanity. I wanted I wanted to swear, and I needed to swear. If I could have, I'd have been shouting those profanities from the rooftops. But I had no strength to raise my voice or even stomp around, so that left my drawings. I could write down an exclamation of disgust, carefully and lovingly, so that seeing it gave me strength, reminded me that I have a voice and I am still alive. Seeing the repetition of my words and patterns calmed me. The inherent beauty of them made me feel in harmony with life again and able to rest. Her Etsy, Etsy shop, Secret Bean, stocks all kinds of merch with these swearing patterns. Bags, scarves, prints, mugs, throw pillows, clothing, and more, even swimsuits. You can also find her on Spoonflower, where you can buy wallpaper, fabric, and wrapping paper with her patterns. 
On Roostery, you can get swearing pattern tablecloths, curtains, table runners, and the like. Uh, and when you see the patterns, they're, they're pretty interesting. And I think what's most interesting is you can get this as things like wallpaper. I mean, there's a, a pattern with a lot of, of line work and with the word fuck repeatedly um, dispersed throughout the art. Um, so uh, pretty interesting artwork and interesting little story about her way that she dealt with the challenges of her healthcare issues. And once again, that was, does that designer's name is Sonia Harris and her Etsy shop is Secret Bean. This piece is from metro.co.uk. We all like chocolate. I had a piece before I uh, started recording and I'm looking at another piece now, but you know, Eating, eating candy while you're recording a podcast usually just doesn't mix very well. Uh, this piece is by Richard Hartley Parkinson. Town flooded with chocolate after storage tanks spilled across roads. Firefighters were called out to an unusual job after a ton of melted chocolate spilled out from a huge vat. What has been described as, quote, a small technical defect the liquid chocolate oozed out of the tank, out of the factory, and onto a road where it solidified. The job to clear it up then fell to around 25 firefighters who pried it off with shovels, hot water, and torches to remove the leftover bits from cracks and holes in the road. The chocolate had oozed from the Drymeister Chocolate Factory in Westonen, northwest Germany. Company boss Marcus Lucky, Lucky, wow, Marcus Lucky, maybe it's pronounced Lucky there, said the factory would be back in action today. He added that if the spill had happened closer to Christmas, quote, that would have been a catastrophe. And this piece is from Oddity Central, written by Spooky. Russia's most advanced robot. Yesterday, during the opening of Russia's annual... Oh, nice little ad that keeps popping up in my way. Yesterday, during the opening of Russia's annual project scientific forum in the city of Yaroslav, or Yaroslavl, the audience got to see Boris, a highly advanced robot that major news channel Russia 24 called, quote, the country's most modern robot. Only Boris wasn't really all that advanced, or even a robot for that matter. Very similar in appearance to Honda's famous Asimo humanoid robot, Boris can reportedly walk and talk, do mathematical calculations, and even dance. VT demonstrated on stage of the project forum. The audience made up primarily of young students was blown away by the Russian robot's advanced capabilities as were several news outlets, including Russia 24, which dedicated a news segment to Boris, showcasing his performance at the forum and calling it, quote, Russia's most modern robot. However, there were a few things that didn't quite add up about Boris. 
and Internet users were quick to point them out. First, everyone wondered where Boris's sensors were located, as its head seemed to only feature LED lights for eyes and mouth. How could it perform all these feats and be aware of its surroundings without any sensors? Then there was some controversy about its speech capabilities. Boris didn't feature any speakers, and there was no microphone anywhere close to it when it spoke, but a robotic voice could be heard from the speakers in the hall whenever it was asked a question. A lot of people were convinced that Boris's voice was, in fact, pre-recorded. Boris was supposed to be the most advanced robot ever created in Russia, and yet no one had ever heard of it. How had scientists managed to perfect it without ever releasing any information about their work? Boston Dynamics, the famous U.S. developing advanced robots, had gradually released footage of its creations at various stages. But no one could even find any mention of an advanced robot being developed in Russia. People also noticed that during its dance routine, Boris was making these unnecessary movements with different parts of its body. The whole routine looked more like the awkward movements of a man struggling to appear robotic than the programmed motions of an actual robot. Finally, the question that seemed to be on everybody's mind was, quote, Why did Boris look so bulky compared to other humanoid robots? Asimo and other advanced robots featured slim hinged arms and legs as well as a very slim waist, but Boris looked like a person could easily fit inside it. With so many questions surrounding the surprise unveiling of this advanced robot, it didn't really come as a surprise to anyone that Boris wasn't actually a robot at all. A simple Google search of robotic suit revealed that the humanoid robot was really just a commercially available robot suit called the Alesha Robot Costume. It looks just like Boris, and it can be yours for 250,000 rubles. The shocking resemblance between the so-called advanced robot unveiled yesterday and the Alesha suit is solid enough proof that news outlets like Russia 24 made a blunder, but they could claim that it was an honest mistake. However, T-Journal recently posted a photo of Boris the robot from behind, which clearly shows a man's neck inside the suit. It was originally shared on Twitter by Yaroslavl News, whose footage Russia 24 showed during their program. So many are claiming that Russia 24 cannot say that it was deceived by the organizers. Following the revelation of Boris's true nature, Russia 24 has removed the video news segment from its YouTube channel, but the media outlet has yet to offer any explanation of the blunder. And this piece is by David... Peskovitz from Boing Boing. Vermont man installs a massive middle finger sculpture on lawn. Several weeks ago, Ted Pilkey of Westford, Vermont installed this massive wooden middle finger sculpture on his lawn atop a 16-foot pole. From Boston.com, quote, I'm not trying to cause hate and animosity to the people who live in that town. Because there's very good people in that town, the 54-year-old Westford native says of his fellow residents in the 2,000-person town. All the people are very good people. With the exception, Pelkey says, 
of the Westford Select Board, Development Review Board, and other town leaders who have blocked his efforts to get a permit to build the 8,000-square-foot garage so he could move his truck repair and monofilament recycling businesses in nearby Swanton to his own property. Officials say Pelkey's applications have fallen short of the town's standards, but he thinks they're biased against him. Although the structure is visible from a state highway, it is outside of the state's right-of-way and not within our jurisdiction, Jackie DeMen, a spokeswoman for the agency, told Boston.com in an email. The structure does not meet the statutory definition of a sign and thus can't be regulated under the Vermont Billboard law. And uh, so this gentleman in Vermont, in Westford, Vermont, taking revenge on his town government in one of the uh, few ways that he has available to him by erecting a giant middle finger on a 16-foot pole in his yard. And this piece is from NBCNews.com. An armored Brinks truck spilled money on New Jersey Route 3 West, leading to multiple crashes as people got out of their cars to collect the cash. According to East Rutherford Police Department, it appears that the armored truck had a malfunction of one of its doors, causing it to become unsecured. So uh, here's a second armored armored truck story, but this wasn't like the first one. This wasn't a uh, concerted effort by some well well planned um mastermind to uh get the cash out of an armored truck using heavy equipment this is just a bizarre story and this is actually near where i live i i drive this road to work every day uh this actually happened while i was on vacation and and not driving into work every day i probably would have missed it anyway as it happened about an hour or so after I usually pass that road. But I don't understand a few things with this story. Um, first of all, this armored truck dropped, I think from another story I read, a quarter million dollars or so. So $250,000 uh, out of this truck onto the road. First of all, when you're driving down the highway, in an armored truck, as you do, how in the heck does your back door open by itself? It, it doesn't happen. It shouldn't happen. It's not supposed to happen. It, it's, it's, it's step number one of this can't be possible, is that mechanism shouldn't be able to open. Yeah, sure, vehicles have problems, doors have problems, you know, uh, the world's an imperfect place, as Bender from, uh, from The Breakfast Club says. Things, screws fall out all the time, you know. So, okay, I'll grant you there is a remote possibility. We're not just talking about a, a panel, panel van that has a, a broken door because somebody slammed, the, slammed something in the door and busted the latch. We're talking about a freaking armored truck shouldn't happen. But I'll take that. I'll take that as a given. There was a, a major defect in this latch. It didn't connect. When it was driving down the highway, 
they hit a bump or they swerved, they moved from one lane into another, the latch sprung, the door opened. All right. I'm with you up to that point. How in the hell does a bag or more than one bag full of money that's sitting in the back of that armored truck fall out of that door? That shouldn't happen. It doesn't matter if the door is open or closed. The bag shouldn't be falling off the back of the truck. So that's number two of implausibilities to this story, to this event. But I'll even go so far as to grant you number two. Because maybe the bags weren't stowed properly in the back of that armored truck. And when they hit that bump, the bags actually fell against the back door, thereby causing that latch to pop open and falling out of the back of the truck. All right. That's uh, extraordinarily implausible, but uh, not completely illogical. How does a bag of money in the back of an armored truck that falls out of the back of that armored truck open and spill its contents all over the road? We're not talking about a bag of money sitting on the road, a bag of $250,000 sitting on the road that they went and picked up. If you go watch this video, the driver and or uh, guard in that truck is running around the highway picking up bills. I don't know if they're tens or twenties or hundred dollar bills, but they're scattered on the highway. Multiple cars stopped. Multiple cars crashed into those other cars that had stopped. People jumped, stopped in the middle of the highway and jumped out of their car and picked up cash and, and got back in their car and drove away. It's mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling that, that this whole series of events could actually happen and did actually happen in the way that it's described. Um, you know, it, it would be more plausible that uh, it was an intentional, intentional money dump so that someone could pick up some cash. You know, I don't have any insider information, that's for sure. I have no relation to this other than reading about it on the news and, and seeing it on the news. Um, it is more likely that somebody opened a bag of cash and dumped and opened the door of the back of that van and threw that cash out on the street um, than all of the series of implausibilities that uh, claim to have happened in this, in this event. In any event, um, they did recover a portion of the money, but the last number that I saw was that there were still about $140,000 missing from that event. So uh, if you uh, picked up any of that cash, you know, I think there's some officers that would love to speak to you, um, but uh, good for you if you got anything out of that. Next up, this is from Bloomberg.com. And I don't see a byline on this one. It's probably buried here somewhere. Uh, this is called Beijing to judge every resident based on behavior by end of 2020. China's plan to judge each of its 1.3 billion people based on their social behavior 
is moving a step closer to reality, with Beijing set to adopt a lifelong points program by 2021 that assigns personalized ratings for each resident. You know, there's a lot of points programs out there, and a lot of us uh, opt into them um, because we get a good benefit out of them. You know, I mean, maybe this is going to get you like a discount at Starbucks or, uh, or whatever the equivalent is in Shanghai. Um, you know, maybe you'll get some uh, extra frequent flyer miles by getting these uh, social points and, and being, being uh, highly ranked. The capital city will pool data from several departments to reward and punish some 22 million citizens based on their actions and reputations by the end of 2020, according to a plan posted on the Beijing Municipal Government's website on Monday. Those with better so-called social credit will get, quote, green channel benefits, while those who violate laws will find life more difficult. The Beijing project will improve blacklist systems so that those deemed untrustworthy will be, quote, unable to move even a single step, according to the government's plan. Xinhua reported on the proposal Tuesday, while the report posted on the municipal government's website is dated from July 18. China has long experimented with systems that grade its citizens, rewarding good behavior with streamlined services while punishing bad actions with restrictions and penalties. Critics say such moves are fraught with risks and could lead to systems that reduce humans to little more than a report card. Beijing's efforts represent the most ambitious yet among more than a dozen cities that are moving ahead with similar programs. Hangzhou rolled out its personal credit system earlier this year, rewarding, quote, pro-social behaviors such as volunteer work and blood donations, while punishing those who violate traffic laws and charge under-the-table fees. By the end of May, people with bad credit in China have been blocked from booking more than 11 million flights and 4 million high-speed train trips, according to the National Development and Reform Commission. According to the Beijing government's plan, different agencies will link databases to get a more detailed picture of every resident's interactions across a swath of services. The proposal calls for agencies including tourism bodies, business regula regulators, and transit authorities to work together. The tracking of individual behavior in China and everywhere has become easier as economic life moves online with apps such as Tencent's WeChat and Ant Financial's Alipay, a central node for making payments, getting loans, and organizing transport. Accounts are generally linked to mobile phone numbers, which in turn require government IDs. The final version of China's national social credit system remains uncertain, but as rules forcing social networks and internet providers to remove anonymity get increasingly enforced, and facial recognition systems become more popular with policing bodies, authorities are likely to find everyone from internet dissenters to train fair skippers easier to catch and punish than ever before. This sounds like an episode of Black Mirror. In fact, this, there was, was an episode of Black Mirror that was very, very much like this. You couldn't rent an apartment 
um, without a social score that was a certain level. And it, the, the story was following that one individual's efforts to increase her social media score um, and, and find ways to boost it so she would be able to rent that dream apartment that she wanted. It's, uh, it's a brave new world, and it's uh, fraught with possibilities of abuse, especially where um, you can get punished based on your score, and your score can uh, potentially not be entirely under your control. This piece is from alternet.org. This is written by Philip Smith from Independent Media Institute. A Georgia woman has filed a federal lawsuit after she spent nearly four months in jail because a roadside drug test administered by untrained police officers falsely identified a bag of cotton candy as methamphetamine. Monroe County resident Dasha Fincher filed the lawsuit last week against Monroe County, the two deputies who arrested her, and the company that makes the drug test. The lawsuit argues that the Monroe County Sheriff's Office was reckless and negligent and violated her civil rights. According to the lawsuit, the car Fincher was riding in was pulled over on New Year's Eve 2016 because of a dark window tint. The deputies said, even though they later admitted the windows were legal. Deputies Cody Maples and Alan Henderson spotted a large open plastic bag inside the vehicle, and Fincher explained that it was cotton candy. The deputies didn't believe Fincher and used a roadside field drug test, which they said indicated there was meth in the bag. She was then arrested, hauled off to jail, and charged with meth trafficking and possession of meth with intent to distribute. Her bond was set at $1 million, which she was unable to come up with, so she sat in jail for the next four months. In March 2017, Georgia Bureau of Investigation lab test results revealed that the substance was not an illegal drug. But Fincher sat in jail for another month before prosecutors finally dropped the charges. The lawsuit says the drug test is the NARC-2, manufactured by North Carolina-based Searchy Acquisitions. That particular field drug test is known for producing errant results. In Georgia alone, police using the NARC-2 to field test drugs have wrongfully arrested at least 30 people, including a man with breath mints, which tested positive for crack, a teacher with goodies headache powder, which tested positive for cocaine, and a couple with vitamins, which tested positive for ecstasy. In all those cases, as in Fincher's lab test results from the Bureau of Investigation, found no presence of illegal substances. But in all those cases, the exonerating results came only weeks or months later, after the harm to innocent Georgians had already been done. The NARC-2 is still in wide use in Georgia. The manufacturer, Searchy, 
defends itself by saying, our NARC presumptive drug tests are presumptive only. All samples should be sent to a crime lab for confirmation. But too many Georgia law enforcement agencies clearly don't bother to wait for confirmation before making life-changing arrests. And the state of Georgia doesn't even require police officers to be trained on how to do the tests. As a result, innocent Georgians are being wrongfully arrested and jailed, and now perhaps at least one of these law enforcement agencies will have to pay for its wrongdoing. And finally, the last piece this episode is from ACLU.org. You thought the story about uh, China was a little, a little dystopian and a little black mirror. Well, here we go again. This is by Hina Shamsi, director of ACLU National Security Project. It's called The Government is Blacklisting People Based on Predictions of future crimes. Imagine you've never been charged with any crime, yet the government blacklists you as a terrorism threat and bans you from flying indefinitely. You're separated from family members, can't get to weddings or funerals or religious obligations, and lose jobs because you can't travel or your employer finds out you're blacklisted. You know what the government has done violates your constitutionally protected ability to travel and to be free from false stigma. You have rights. The Constitution guarantees due process. So you ask the government for its reasons and evidence as well as a live hearing to establish your credibility and innocence. In response, the government says it put you on the no-fly list because it predicts that you might commit a violent terrorism act in the future but it won't tell you all the reasons why or give you any evidence or the hearing that you seek. This is the Kafkaesque nightmare in which our clients on the no-fly list have been trapped for eight years. And it's the unfair system we're challenging on their behalf in an argument before a federal appeals court in Portland, Oregon. Throughout this long-running case, our clients have sought a fair process in order to clear their names and regain rights most Americans take for granted. At first, they achieved a major success. In 2014, a federal district court judge struck down as unconstitutional the government's original procedures for people on the no-fly list to challenge their placement. Under that system, the government wouldn't even confirm whether people were on the list or not. Quote, without proper notice and an opportunity to be heard, an individual could be doomed to indefinite placement on the no-fly list, the court found. The absence of any meaningful procedures to afford plaintiffs the opportunity to contest their placement on the no-fly list violates the plaintiff's rights to procedural due process. The court ordered reforms. As a result, the government told seven of our clients that they were cleared to fly but it never told them why they'd been put on the no-fly list in the first place. It also announced in April 2015 that under its revised process, it would tell U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents whether they are on the no-fly list and possibly provide reasons. But when the government applied its reforms to our clients still on the list, it became clear just how inadequate those changes were. 
The government still refuses to provide meaningful notice of the reasons our clients are blacklisted, the basis for those reasons, and a live hearing before a neutral decision maker. Much as before, our clients are left to guess at the government's case and so can't actually challenge government error. Throughout our lawsuit, we've also learned that the government is blacklisting people who have never even been charged with wrongdoing based on a prediction that they might someday engage in terrorism. The government eventually revealed that the criteria it uses to ban people from flying are all based on its view that they are, quote, a threat, a term that the government has never publicly defined and one that encompasses the entire universe of First Amendment protected speech, association, and conduct that falls short of committing a prohibited crime. This is unconstitutionally vague and it invites arbitrary and discriminatory government action. It's perhaps no coincidence that all our clients are Muslim. We provided the court with expert evidence which the government never refuted, establishing that government predictions like these guarantee a high risk of error. When the government undertakes such a perilous endeavor, basic due process requires rigorous procedural safeguards. Nonetheless, in the decision that was unprecedented and unjustified, the district court concluded that the government's revised process satisfied constitutional requirements. The court largely rested its incorrect con conclusion on a novel ground that, quote, undue risk to national security justified the government's secrecy and deficient process. But no other court has ever permitted blanket assertions of national security risk, untethered to specific justifications that courts then adjudicate to legitimize a process so flawed. To the contrary, courts have time-tested means to manage between legitimate government secrecy needs and individual rights. More fundamentally, the Supreme Court has made clear that the, quote, essential constitutional promises of meaningful notice and an opportunity to be heard Quote, may not be eroded in cases implicating national security. So again, the government uh, exercising powers that it does not own, that it does not um, have, and it's, uh, it's up to us, it's up to the people impacted, and all of us, to fight back. Um, our rights aren't, aren't given to us. Our rights are only there because we fight to defend them. And that'll wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to send me a message, you can uh, send that to unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can go to unrelatedthings.net to check out more and see the other podcasts that I do. I do a political podcast called Bernie-2020, and I do a political music podcast called Polyrical as well. So if you are so inclined, please check those out too. Thanks for listening.
It's unrelated things.